Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. First Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. And the word of the Sovereign Lord reads, Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well, as deacons gain a good standing for themselves, and also great confidence in the faith that is in Jesus, in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Pastor, pastors and authors, Mark Dever and Paul Alexander once wrote, Deacons serve to care for the physical and financial needs of the church. And they do so in a way that heals division, brings unity under the word, and supports the leadership of the elders. Without this practical service of deacons, the elders will not be free to devote themselves to praying and serving the word to the people. Elders need deacons to serve practically, and deacons need elders to lead spiritually. So I want to welcome you back to this series on the church titled First Timothy, A Plan for Church and Life. And while you have your Bibles out, we, and before you put them away, please turn with me to Acts chapter number 6. <clears throat> Acts 6. And we'll begin reading in verse 1. It reads, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, or as new members were being added to the church, a complaint by the, by the Hellenists or the Greeks arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. In other words, the early church helped to meet the physical needs of the most vulnerable people in the community, which were widows. And division in the church began to arise because the Hebrew widows were, were being fed and the Greek widows were beginning to be neglected. And the twelve, the apostles, it says, or the, or the twelve, it says, but, but the apostles summoned the full members of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up the preaching of the word of God to serve tables. The thing is, is the issue had grown and it required somebody's attention to solve it. As with the way things are. Things pop up. But the theological leaders of the church were saying that if we take the time to take care of this ourselves, the problem is we're going to be taking away from our primary responsibility, which is the preaching of the Word of God and ministering to the church and its spiritual needs. And that just simply is not going to work because the mission of the church is to facilitate the Great Commission it is to train up and equip members in the church to go out into the world and evangelize the lost, help them get plugged into the church, and then to disciple them to do the same thing. This all requires theological leaders who focus on prayer and studying the Word of God, 
so that they have what they need up here and in here to proclaim the Word of God to the members of the church in order to equip them for the work of the ministry. And so, if the theological leaders had to set aside their regular duties to handle and deal with the practical needs of the church, they may indeed actually accomplish feeding the members of the church, but they risk withholding spiritual nourishment from all of the church membership. That's why the early church leaders came up with a solution and said, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we, the theological leaders of the church, will devote ourselves to prayer in the ministry of the Word. They said, basically, let us find faithful members of the church who can handle this issue and take care of these physical needs of the church so that we can do the job that we were called to do. And in verse 5, it says, And what they said pleased the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid hands on them. In other words, they ordained them for the task. You see, they appointed faithful men to this task, fixing the problem, which then preserved the unity of the church. And the apostles were then able to continue on with the work that they were supposed to do. And the result was, as we see in verse 7, the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of, many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The net result of this arrangement was that the church flourished. Brothers and sisters, this right here is the context out of which the office of the deacon was, was created. The Word of God was proclaimed by qualified men, and the church grew. As the church grew, the needs of the church increased. And these needs became so great that they threatened the unity inside of the church. But rather than the apostles jumping in and taking on the extra responsibility and wearing one more hat, which would actually hamper their ministry you know, of the Word, they appointed faithful, mature members of the church to handle the practical needs of the congregation. And the result was the unity of the church was preserved, and the church continued to grow. And what this reveals to us is the church has spiritual and theological needs, but it also has physical and practical needs. And with that, we can see then when the, the Bible prescribes two specific offices of leadership for the church. You have elders or pastors who meet the spiritual needs through the ministry of the Word of God, and then deacons who meet practical needs through ministries of service. Right? And, and even more than that, deacons serve as an example for all members of the church who are called to serve themselves in some capacity. Now, with that foundation being laid, today we're going to talk about the office of the deacon in the church. That's where we are in the text today. If you remember, the, the Ephesian church was in need of reformation. It had allowed unqualified men to, to become pastors or elders in the church, and they began to teach false doctrines, and the result of that was behavioral issues inside and outside of the church. And with that, Paul leaves Timothy in Ephesus to get things right, and he gives Timothy really three basic directives. Number one, he's got to put an end to the false teaching. 
Number two, he was to deal with the behavioral issues in the church. And three, he needed to shore up the leadership of the church with qualified men in both the theological area and also the practical areas. Right? That's, that's why Paul, in chapter 3 of this letter, spells out the qualifications for both elders, which we talked about two weeks ago, and deacons, which we're going to talk about today. And so with that in mind, let's look back at the text at 1 Timothy chapter 3. And what I want you to notice in verse 8 is Paul opens up with the word deacons. He says, deacons likewise must be dignified. And then he goes on to describe their qualifications like he did for the elders in the church. Now, if, if, if you have been in church for any time at all, you've probably heard the term deacon, right? In fact, that's probably the only place you really hear the term is in, in church, right? Most people, when you hear the word deacon, you can't even think of anything else besides a church. It's a church-related word. It's kind of like pew, pulpit, offering, hymnal. These are all kind of words that are part of the Christian vernacular. You say those words, people immediately think of, of church. But really... What is a deacon? I mean, most people have an idea or they have a feeling. It's usually related to somebody they know, and they look at them and go, that's a deacon. But really, what is a deacon? Well, the word that Paul uses here in the Greek in the text is deaconess. Right? This is the word that we transliterate into English that ends up as the word deacon for us. But really, this word did not originate as an official title. Right? It's actually a very generic word. In fact, the word uh, that, that, that ends up being used is really used of someone who waits on tables. Right? That's, that's what the word meant. It was a waiter. In fact, if you remember, that's how the office of deacon got started. Right? The theological leaders said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables or wait on tables. And they appointed men to this task to do what? Wait on tables. The word deacon is often referred to someone who is a waiter, or another word to say, waiter is a server. But this word has more depth than that. The word deaconess is actually composed of, of two different words. It's composed of dia, which means thoroughly or completely, and then conus, dust. And you're like, what? What do you mean? See, when you put these words together, it literally means to thoroughly kick up dust, which is weird, right? We're like, what does it have to do with being a servant? Well, what happens is this word is conveying the idea of someone who is so busy moving around so fast that they're kicking up dust as a result. That's the idea. That they're moving around so quickly and they're working so hard that they're kicking up dust in the process. That kind of gives you the picture of what they mean by deacon, someone who's busily engaged in service, right? That's the foundation of the word. It's someone who is so busy serving that they're hustling from one place to the next to get things done that they're kicking up a cloud of dust. You see, it's a metaphor for someone who is really working hard and who is committed to serving other people. In fact, the word actually, in the broadest sense, in the Bible, gets translated as someone who is busy serving, a servant, which incidentally is, is the way that it's translated most often. A deacon or diaconos is someone who simply serves. 
Mark chapter 10, Jesus says, But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Daikonos. It's a little different pronunciation. Same idea. And whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, daikonothenai, but to serve, daikonothenai. You should be impressed that I remember that, right? And to give life is, his life as a ransom for many. Jesus himself is saying, the greatest among you are the servants. Right? And even he said, I didn't come to serve, I mean, to be served, but to serve. All of these words are related to the same idea, the word deacon. In Luke chapter 22, verse 27, it says, For who is greater, the one who reclines at table or the one who serves? Daikonon. It is the one who reclines at table. But I am among you as the one who serves. Daikonon. Jesus said, I'm here to serve. And so the broadest sense of the word we translate as deacon is servant. And understand Christ himself calls himself a servant. He was a servant of God and he was a servant of man, which is what he said, but also what he demonstrated in his life, in healing people, meeting their needs. But he especially showed that in washing the disciples' feet, that there was nothing he wouldn't do for them. But he most appropriately showed that by dying for sinners on the cross. So Jesus was a servant, as well as the Apostle Paul, as well as all of the church leaders, and anyone, I want you to hear me, and anyone who serves in any capacity. In fact, Paul says in Romans chapter 13, in 11, verse 13, he says, Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles, insomuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. Now, the word ministry here is the word daikonion. Again, it's the same root word, daikonion. In other words, a ministry is simply what? A service. That's what a ministry is. It's a service. In fact, this verse can be paraphrased as this. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles, and so much then I, as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my service that I'm offering to them. So the, the word deacon has a wide range of applications. It can be expressed in a number of English words like waiter or servant or attendant or minister. But at the heart of the word is the concept of active service. It's someone who serves other people. And with that, this word has both general and specific application because it can refer to a servant in general in any capacity, or it can re refer to the official church leadership position specifically. In fact, I would submit to you that the office of deacon as a leadership position really serves as an example for all Christians. Because all Christians are called to serve the church and the world at large in some capacity. All of us. Think about Ephesians chapter 4. One that should be very familiar with because I refer to it often. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds or pastors and teachers to what? Equip the saints for something. What is that? 
the work of ministry. You know what that word ministry is? Dikon eos. It's the same root word. You see, who are the saints? That's right. All of the believers in the church, all of you, if you have your, put your faith in Christ, you are a saint. Not because of what you have done, because of what Christ has done for you. But you are a saint, set apart. And if you are a believer then, you're a saint. And, and what, are the, what are the saints to be equipped for? For service. All of you, every believer in the church is called to be equipped in some manner to serve in some capacity in the church. Be it sweeping the floors, feeding homeless people, grilling up hot dogs for barbecues, visiting shut-ins and loving on them, making sure that people stay connected to the church, helping others with repairs on their homes, running you know, a Bible club at school, volunteering for VBS, teaching a class, engineering a live stream, sending out birthday cards, cutting the grass. The truth is there are lots of physical and practical needs in and around the church, and everyone is called to take part in responsibility and be involved to serve in some capacity. In fact, everyone is called to be a diaconess or a deacon or servant in some respect, generically speaking. Everyone, everyone is to be a servant. And for those who aspire to the office of deacon, who have the official title of deacon in the church, they are to be the living example for all of the servants in the church. Just as elders are called to be living examples of the Christian life, deacons are to be examples of what being a servant looks like for all Christians in the church. And with that then, what we see in this text is not only the qualifications for deacons officials officially, but it's really the qualifications for all who would serve in some capacity in the church. And with that in mind, as we look at the qualifications for deacons, for the office of deacon, let us keep in mind that this applies to all of us as we serve in our various capacities in the church. Now, the first thing I want you to notice, the first thing I want you to look at is, is verse 13. I think this is the jumping off point that we need to kind of start with. It says, for those who serve well as deacons gain a, a good standing for themselves and also a great, also great confidence in their faith that is in Christ Jesus. Now, there's a, we can spend all day just on that verse, but there's, there's a point I want you to, to see here. And the thing I believe that we need to understand is that serving God as a deacon or even as a servant who doesn't have official title, right, that being a servant is a blessing and a privilege from God himself. I don't think we meditate on that truth enough. I don't think that oftentimes we even see it that way. Sometimes I think we feel like it's a big burden rather than a privilege. Serving God is a blessing. Right? And through serving, we are blessed by our relationships with other people but we are also blessed in our relationship with Christ. Serving gives us the joy of investing our lives in the lives of others, and it is the fruit of our faith that grants us the assurance and the confidence that we truly belong to God. Now again, Paul says that deacons receive the blessing from service, but it's safe to apply that to those who serve. Serving in any capacity is a blessing. 
And if you have served for any length of time at all, I think you, you see that. I mean, believe me, sometimes serving is hard because sometimes circumstances are hard. And let's just be honest, sometimes people are really difficult and prickly and hard to be around and hard to deal with and they irritate you and upset you. But ultimately, when you think back, why do you do what you do? It's because it's a blessing to be able to serve the creator of the universe. Serving others is a blessing, but it's also a privilege. It's a divine privilege to serve God who created all things, who needs nothing from us. You do realize that, right? All that God asks us to do, he can accomplish himself. He doesn't need us. He can do everything he wants to do by himself. But for some reason, by the counsel of his own will, as we talked about this morning, by his, by his own grace, by his own desire, he has desired to include us, to make us part of that, to allow us the privilege of being able to serve him. And I promise you, if we would start with that perspective, our service would never, ever, ever become old. Serving God is a privilege. No matter what the capacity is, by the way. No matter what it is. It doesn't matter if you take out the trash and no one knows about it. It doesn't matter if you're the one who serves the Lord's table and everybody sees that you're the one who does that. Service to God is a privilege in all capacities and it ought to bring us joy. But it also means service to God is not a right Rendering service to God and rendering service to the church is not your right as an American. And, and, and I, sh- I shouldn't have to say that, but, but it's the truth. It's a sacred privilege granted by God and should be received with the greatest humility and grace and joy. And because of that, then, serving is a, pr- because it's a privilege and not a right, then serving God in the church is not a way to help people become interested in the church. I'm going to say that again. Serving God and the church is not a way to help people who are not interested in the church to become interested in the church. And I realize it's probably an unpopular thing to say, but it is the absolute truth. For some reason, over the last 100 years, there's been this notion that's popped up in the American church culture that says we should start letting people who aren't really even committed members of the church start serving in the church. In fact... Some go far to, to even so far to even say that, hey, let's invite unbelievers to, to serve in the church. And the rationale is this, that if we allow them to serve, maybe they might just learn the joy of, of serving Jesus, and then maybe somehow, someway, they'll come to faith in Christ and then become committed Christians. Maybe we just let them serve. They'll become more serious about their walk with God. The problem with that perspective is it's thoroughly unbiblical. You just can't defend that from the Bible. There's no biblical basis for a practice like that. And, and don't get me wrong. I, w- I want you to realize, like, I thought exactly that way not so many years ago. But then I grew in my understanding of what the church is, what the church does, and what the church is for. And I realized it's an error. You see, the problem is that many people have an unbiblical view of the church. Many people think that the purpose of the gathering of the church on Sunday morning is to get people interested in the church. That somehow that we are to, to, to be open enough and welcoming enough and loving enough and entertaining enough to get non-believers interested in the church. It's to get those who are nominal Christians who don't ever come to church to somehow get excited about coming to church. That's why 
so many of the American churches have bought into the, the seeker-sensitive movement, and the result is Sunday morning services look more like, more like concerts and motivational speeches rather than worship services because they're trying to attract non-Christians and nominal Christians to church. But I want you to understand, when you read the Bible, that is not what the gathering of the church is for on Sunday morning. We gather on Sunday morning for a singular purpose. That is to worship Him. That's to worship God. Sunday morning is not about us. It's not about them. It is about Him. We call it a worship service because we are all coming here to serve Him. We gather. We don't gather to be served. We're not consumers. We gather to do the serving. The seeker-sensitive movement says, you know, come here and you will, and we will serve you. The Bible says, come here together and serve God. A worship service is about the church gathering, a gathering of truly born-again believers coming together to serve and glorify God through corporate worship. And that is accomplished through prayer. That's why we pray so much. Through the singing of the truths of God. That's why the songs we sing are so robust in their theology. It's the truths about Him and the reading and the preaching of God's Word and through the fellowship of God's people. Now, as a byproduct and in the process of the worship service, the church is absolutely encouraged, right? And edified and equipped. But these are the benefits for us who serve. That is what the gathering is for, that all of us, all we do here in the church, whether it's vacuuming the floor to folding bulletins, to collecting the offering, to adjusting the soundboard, to singing, to preaching, to closing the windows and turning off the cooler when we're done, to sitting there listening to the word being preached, all that we do, big and small, is aimed at one end, the worship and the glorification of our King. Now, as we, now do we make a point to be loving and welcoming to everyone who walks in the door? Absolutely. Believers and unbelievers alike. We are to be gracious and hospitable and help them to feel truly, excuse me, truly welcome. And if we discover that there's a need that they have that we can meet, then we ought to meet that. But we also must remember, ultimately, it's not even about them. It is about him in everything we do. And because it's about him, every single act of service from leading kids at VBS to spraying the weeds in the parking lot is a privilege and not a right. And as such, we ought not think of service in any capacity as a means of getting people simply interested in the church. We don't need to get people interested in the church through service. We need to get people interested in Christ through the gospel then they will naturally become interested in the church. We don't let people serve in the church simply to help them to want to be at church. Which, by the way, there's a lot of people, right, that we feed here at the church, and many of them have approached me, and you know, out of some sense of obligation because they're taking from us. They'll, they'll say, well, well Pastor, man, man can, can I just come down and do some work at the church for you? Can I, you know cut the grass or pass the stucco or whatever, and my answer is always the same. I, sit, I sincerely appreciate the offer, but the only people who get to serve here are the ones who are, that belong here, are members of the church. Now, you're welcome to come, 
And you're welcome to sit and, and, and worship with us and fellowship with us until you feel comfortable. And if you don't feel this is the right place, then you'll get plugged in somewhere else because you should be. But you can't serve here unless you're part of the church. And, and, the, and the reason for that is service is a privilege from the king himself and not a right. And we ought to see it that way. And we certainly ought to treat it that way. Serving God is a privilege, which means serving God is not also about fancy titles. We don't serve in the church to earn a title. We serve because we're seeking to honor God. Not to mention the office of deacon. <laughs> really, the office of deacon really could have been called the office of servant. That's what it means, right? Or even worse, it could have been the office of waiter. He's the head waiter here, right? Would that, that make me the mater d? Maybe. Even the term itself that we use doesn't really, doesn't, isn't really a fancy title. The term itself demonstrates the humble attitude of this position. A deacon is one who serves along with all the others who serve. The title simply just signifies that a person has been appointed to a higher level of responsibility. Because they've been faithful in little, God has made them faithful in a lot. Now, with that established, deaconess means a servant generically or a deacon in the church officially. And we have made clear that service is a blessing and a privilege, you know, for whoever serves in the church. Now, let's talk about the requirements for deacons as officers and really the requirements for those who serve in the church. Turn with me to, uh, to, to verse 9. Paul says they must hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Now, there's a lot to be said about this particular verse here, but, and we're going to probably talk about more of this in a moment, but I want to think about this. The mystery, the word mystery here simply means something that was once hidden is now revealed. It's not in the sense that we think of it. It's not like a mystery like we don't know the answer. What a mystery is in that term is we know the answer, but they didn't know the answer before. It was hidden, but now revealed. Well, what is the mystery that was once hidden, that has been revealed, that we must hold to by faith? What is that mystery? It's the gospel. Right? The fact that Jesus Christ lived a perfect life, died on the cross, and rose three days later, proving that He is what He claimed to be. Right? We must hold to the gospel with a clear conscience. Well, what kind of a person holds to the gospel and has a clear conscience because of it? A believer somebody who has faith, a person who has faith in Christ. So the very first prerequisite of someone who is a deacon, and really naturally anyone who serves, is what? They must be a believer. They must have faith in Christ. You see, serving by, and by extension, serving and by extension being a deacon requires faith in Christ. That's why we say service is not a right. You must be a Christian in order to serve God. Right? And you must absolutely be a Christian to be a deacon. By the way, if you're not, you're serving in vain. Right? Not to mention the only way that you can actually serve God in a way that pleases Him is through what? Through faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 makes that explicitly clear. And without faith, it is what? Impossible to please Him. Without faith, Christ... Without faith in Christ, we're wasting our time. Even Jesus says, abide in me and I in you. 
As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. We cannot serve God in any meaningful capacity without faith in Christ. Serving God in any capacity, be it a deacon or just simply someone who who helps unload boxes of food that were delivered to the church, requires faith in Christ. But there's also more. Paul says in verse 10, let them also be tested first and let them serve. Then let them serve as deacons. Let them be tested. Not taking a theological exam, okay? Somebody's talking about. The testing he's talking about means proving something. It means proving something is real or genuine. The idea that Paul is communicating here is that a deacon must prove something. What must he prove? He must prove that he has a genuine, authentic, real faith. He must prove that, that he's faithful. Well, well, how does one prove that? Well, one proves that by bearing fruit. That's why, the, by the way, there's so much talk in the New Testament of bearing fruit, bearing the fruit of repentance, right? The fruit of the Spirit. Jesus said, abide in me and I and you, and you'll bear much fruit. That's how we prove, that's how, how we can be tested is the, the fruit of our life. Being a deacon, and again, by extension, a servant requires fruit. The fruit that demonstrates a genuine faith in Christ. Well, what does that look like? It looks like faithfulness to God and faithfulness to the church. It looks like a growing more and more love with God and a growing in hatred for the things that God hates, like sin. It also is a growing in, the, in grace and forgiveness and love for other people. These are just some of the evidences that we look for to those that we would consider to be deacons, and certainly those that we would hope would be people who serve in the church. It's actually the slow but steady becoming more and more Christ-like. That is the fruit of the church, or the fruit that the church ought to look for in deacons and those who serve, a, a real faith and a growing more and more in the image of Christ. Now, please understand, Nothing in this implies perfection. Because if it implies that, then we just all go home because none of us are qualified. Right? It's about growing towards spiritual maturity. And obviously we expect for those who were selected to the office of deacon to be more spiritually mature than the brand new Christian who begins to serve. It, it's, and we would expect that certain ministry capacities would require more spiritual maturity than others. For example, you know, we would expect that the requirements for a, a, a director of a ministry, that would require a higher level of spiritual maturity than someone who's just beginning to serve in that ministry. It's about growing in maturity and bearing fruit. And so serving in any capacity, be it a deacon as an officer of the church or otherwise, requires faith, requires fruit, and it also requires commitment. Look with me at verse 8. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. And then in verses 11 through 12, it says, Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children in their own households. Notice that Paul uses the word likewise after deacons. 
He says, deacons likewise must be dignified. Now, the reason why he says this is because he's connecting the character of the deacon to the same character of the elders in the church. As we talked about last time, that elders were to be living examples of practical holiness for the church. They, they are to live in a way that's consistent with how they preach. Hence the term, practice what you preach. And Paul says deacons need to be like elders or pastors. They need to live respectable lives. They are to be committed to holiness. Deacons and all who serve in the church should be committed to pursuing and growing in holiness. Again, let's look at the list. Deacons must be dignified or respectable, not double-tongued, which means literally not saying something to someone, but then going over here and saying something completely different to someone else. Right? Not addicted to much wine, which again, we talked about that and the same thing with elders. It's not about a prohibition against alcohol. It's a prohibition against drunkenness and being addicted. Not greedy for dishonest gain, which should be obvious to everyone because deacons and people who serve in the church oftentimes come in contact with the finances here in the church and also church resources. And then Paul says, let deacons be each the husband of one wife. And again, what we talked about with elders, it's about marital faithfulness. How can a deacon be trusted in the church if he can't be trusted within his own marriage? These traits reflect the same standards of holiness for the elders in the church. Deacons are to pattern their lives after the elders of the church in their commitment to holiness. And all fellow servants should pattern their lives after the deacons in their commitment to holiness. You see, this is the heart of discipleship. I don't know if you see that. As Paul says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. The leaders of the church, elders and deacons both, ought to be examples for newer Christians to look at and say, I need to be more like that because they're like Christ. Serving requires a commitment to holiness, but it also requires a commitment to the gospel. Look again at verse 9. We're coming back to that. It says they must hold to the mystery, must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. The Amplified Bible, which I don't use very often, but it's a, it offers a paraphrase that I think is helpful. It says, upholding and fully understanding the mystery that is the true doctrine of the Christian faith with a clear conscience, resulting from behavior consistent with the spiritual maturity. You see, what Paul is getting at here is even though that deacons do not practice the teaching ministry right, of the Word of God, they must still know the gospel, understand the gospel, and be committed to the gospel in faith and in practice. Because everything that deacons or any servant in the church does ultimately is service to God for the furthering of what? The gospel. The gospel must be the foundation of all the service that, that is to be rendered to other people. Otherwise, all we're doing is busy work. If all that we do is not ultimately pointed at the gospel, we're just staying busy. If we feed people without the commitment to the gospel, we're just temporarily meeting their, their felt need, but we're failing to address their greatest need. If we greet people at the door and make them feel comfortable and loved, but we fail to proclaim the truth of the gospel to them, all we have done is entertain them. If we fill our classrooms up to overflowing with children, 
but we're not moving them to grow in their understanding of the gospel progressively, little by little. All we are doing is providing a babysitting service to the parents that we're entertaining here. Everything we do must be done with a commitment to the gospel because that is why the church exists. And a few verses further, in fact, we'll probably tackle this next week, we see the purpose of the church. Paul says the church is the pillar and the buttress of the truth. The church exists as God's instrument, not simply to feed the hungry and clothe the naked and entertain those that are bored. The church exists to protect and proclaim the truth of the gospel because that is the hope of the world which we sang about this morning. And because of that, all that we do must be done with a commitment to the gospel. We must sing committed to the gospel. We must greet people committed to the gospel. We must meet people's needs committed to the gospel. We must clean toilets and cut the grass and straighten up the offices, all committed to knowing and understanding and furthering the gospel of Jesus Christ. This goes for all who serve, but especially those who are called and appointed to the offices of deacon. Turn with me again to Ephesians chapter 4. It says, For he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, or diakonias, for building up the body of Christ. You see, service in the church requires a commitment to faith in Christ, the gospel, and a commitment to church itself, to the church itself. All Christians are to be equipped by the pastors and the elders in the church for a specific reason, and that reason is the building up the body of Christ or the church. We all have a responsibility for building up the body of Christ. I want you all to understand, all of us have a responsibility for building up this corporate body of Christ. We, are, we all are to be committed to the church, which means the church's physical needs, both corporately as a whole and individually as members. We must be committed to providing each other what we need individually, but we also must be committed to providing what the church needs organizationally. And we must be committed to helping each other to mature in our faith. That's why it's about a community. We all work together to grow in our faith. Again, look with me at Ephesians 4 one more time. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until, look at this, until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ, so we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head in Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Every one of us is to serve in the church in some capacity, helping the church to grow and to mature. But this is particularly true of deacons because the deacons are the leading servants of the church. Now with that, let's talk more specifically about the office of deacon. All the things we've talked about so far, you know, 
apply to deacons, but it can also be applied to those who serve at will. But let's talk about the specifics of those who are called to the sacred responsibility in the church. And by the way, we are blessed with the number of deacons we have here. The first thing is the position of deacon is an, is an official church office. Even though it's not a fancy title, right? it is one of only two offices in the church that were created by God. And it was created and ordained by God to meet the practical needs of the church. Elders and pastors meet the theological needs of the church through ministry of the word and prayer. Deacons are the ones who take care of the physical needs of the church, which include managing and taking care of church facilities and property, meeting felt needs of the members of the church, checking on and loving other members of the church in the community, and meeting the felt needs of those in the community around us. This was the office that was created in Acts chapter 6 and has and, and has been and will be an indispensable part of the church because the church grows. As the church grows, the needs of the church continue to grow. Now, the second thing we need to be clear on is, is though deacons have great responsibility and God blesses those who serve in this capacity, deacons lead through their service, not through church oversight, which means deacons don't have authority over the church itself or over the pastors and the elders of the church. And the reason why I mention this is because the American church, right, there's a form of church government that sprang up really in the 20th century that's really unbiblical. It's this idea of a single pastor who's under the authority of a board of deacons. It's the idea that the deacon board is the body that oversees the church, and they're the ones who hire and fire pastors, and they're the ones who make all of the decisions, practical and theological. And, and this puts elders in submission to a group of people who are simply not qualified to, to oversee the theological direction of the church. And this right here, actually, especially in the American church, in many Baptist churches in particular, has created political wars inside of the church between deacons and elders, and it also has created wars between deacons who have different, differing um, objectives, and it's created wars between people who want to replace them because they want to get their agenda pushed through. This is unbiblical because there's nowhere in Scripture deacons are endowed with that kind of authority, and it's the elders or the pastors who were called overseers and were commissioned by God in the Scriptures to teach and to rule or exercise the oversight of the church. And in light of that, that the biblical model for church leadership it's theologically trained men who become elders that lead the church under the authority of Christ and Scripture, and the deacons lead through service by assisting the elders in their work, as we see in Acts chapter 6. In fact, a great way to understand the function of deacon is to call them leading servants, because they lead the church through acts of service. They are the ones who get things done, right? They are the ones who handle the various ministries of the church. They are the ones who keep the church running. They are the ones who start things like Christian schools and missions of mercy. Deacons are specially commissioned by God to further the kingdom of God by getting projects done and getting programs pushed forward. They are the engines that drive the tangible needs-based ministries of the church, and they are the ones that are the loving touch of the church. That's what they are for. And as such, they are a model and a picture for everyone who serves in the church. All who serve ought to imitate their commitment and passion for God's work in furthering the gospel of Christ. They are indeed to be spiritually mature servants of Christ. That 
is the office of the deacon. They are spiritually mature, leading servants who get things done. But I can't wrap up without talking one last thing that we need to talk about this subject. And that is this. Is the office of deacon something that is like the office of elder, which is reserved only for qualified men? Or is Paul outlining two different positions here, male deacons and female deacons? Now, with respect to the elders in the church, I am very confident in the position that only men are to be elders in the church because it's very clear from the text. Paul specifically goes out of his way to prohibit women from teaching and exercising authority over men, which is the function of the office of the elder or pastor. But with regard to deacons, it is not so clear. Paul doesn't say as explicitly as he does with elders that women cannot be deacons. In fact, I have consulted several exegetical conservative commentaries on this text specifically, verse 11, and I have found no clear consensus about this particular issue. In fact, there are basically two well-reasoned, scripturally supported, but opposing points of view, and I've read both of them, and both positions have their strengths, and both of their str- uh, positions have their weaknesses. And with that, I have I've also asked a few pastors that I know who I respect greatly and what they thought. And again, I didn't get a unanimous agreement. Right? Some said only men should be deacons, and others said, hey, the Bible certainly allows for women to be deacons as well. So there is no, cons- no consensus amongst conservative, reformed, or even Baptists. Right. In fact, let's look at the text again. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them be also let them also be tested first and let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, notice this, likewise, it's like he's repeating himself, likewise they must be dignified, same thing he said about deacons, not slanderers, which is the same thing as not double-tongued, but sober-minded, which is the same thing as not being addicted to much wine, faithful in all things. You see, there's a repetition of the qualifications for deacons, and the expression, their wives, in this text is actually kind of confusing because it doesn't say in the Greek, their wives. Actually, in the text, it says wives. It doesn't say their the whole like possessive there isn't even there. It's not in the Greek. They just, it's interpreted that way. Not to mention the word for wives can also be translated, as we saw before, as women, which then makes the rendering of the text like women, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things, like the male deacons. This rendering, this is a rendering many people prefer and it seems to allow for, for women to be in the position of deacon. Right? And, and the next verse, it just kind of turns back to you know, men being faithful to their wives, and which is understandable because at this time, infidelity was rampant amongst men, but not so much amongst women. And so the truth is, I can actually see both perspectives and point of view. In fact, R.C. Sproul, in a little um, devotion he did on this text, actually summarizes quite well kind of like my experience, and bear with me, it's, it's not very long, but, but he says it better than I do. He says, in the requirements for those who would serve in the, on the deaconate, Paul, in today's message, comments 
on deacons' wives, as the English Standard Version translates the Greek word gynecus in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 11. But this word can also be rendered as women, which would make the passage have a significantly different meaning. If the passage is to be read as t- talking about the wives of male deacons, the office of deacon, like the other office of elder, is limited to men alone. But gynecus means women. Then, then, then if gynecus means women, then Paul is talking about female servants or deaconesses opening up the deaconate to women as well as men. Unfortunately, it is hard to determine the apostle's meaning because of the context details provide us little help in choosing the most appropriate translation. Those who believe Paul allows for women deacons note that he gives no qualifications for elders' wives and therefore no parallel for deacons' wives, suggesting that the office of deaconess is in view. Another argument for deaconesses is the requirement of verse 11 are the same as the mandate for male deacons. Not to be overlooked, proponents of the deaconesses notes that Romans chapter 16, verse 11, calls Phoebe daikonon, a version of the Greek word often translated as deacon. And then finally, a commentator points out, there's nothing like Paul's specific command that women may not be given authority as church elders in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 18 through 13, to bar them from the deaconate, from the, from, from the uh, deaconate. Opponents of deaconesses explain that there are many reasons why Paul would, would give qualifications of deacons' wives and not those of elders. Deacons who deal in ministries of mercy can have close contact with people on occasion when a woman's assistance might be needed. It would be scandalous for a male deacon to, to, to aid sick women in many instances, but their wives can, can help bathe and dress and care for women in need. Those who disagree with Paul allowing for female deacons, do not put much stock in the fact that Phoebe was referred to as a deaconess, for the term can simply mean servant, as we've talked about, not an an ordained office. They also say that it is odd that Paul does not include a section on deaconesses if, in fact, he wants to establish the office for women. He wraps up and says, Reformed Christians who affirm Scripture's final authority continue to differ over whether or not women may be ordained as deacons, what is up for debate is that Paul is, is the traits that Paul lists in 1 Timothy 3.11 should be true of all Christian women, regardless of one's position on deaconesses. If you're a woman, you are you making a concerted effort to avoid slander and to be faithful? And if you were a man, are you encouraging the women in your life in these things? And I would even go a step further to say that women... Though all women are called to serve the Lord in some capacity, and they all ought to do so in faithfulness, seeking to grow towards spiritual maturity, whether they have a title or not. Now, I'm just going to be honest here. After studying all the arguments, uh, I find the arguments in favor of including female deacons more convincing than excluding them. I do. It's just, I can't rationalize the opposite. It just doesn't make any sense. I feel like I had to start with a preconceived notion to go the other way. Because the grammar and the word choice and the structure of the text, and because there is no clear prohibition against female deacons like there was for elders in Timothy, 1 Timothy 2. And more than that, right, I come right back to what a deacon is, right? A deacon is a leading servant, right? Spiritually mature in Christ, 
a person who's committed to holiness, the gospel, and the church. And what I understand from scriptures is all Christians, male and female, are to serve and all Christians are to grow towards maturity and all Christians are to be committed to holiness, the gospel, and the church. All of them. And so I cannot rule out allowing women to serve as a deacon in the church. Right? Further, I've read our own bylaws here at the church, you know, um, and there's no prohibition at all spelled out in our bylaws for women serving as deaconesses in the church. And so with that, if our congregation decides to create a female deaconess board and appoint spiritually mature women to the office of deaconess, I would support it. But before we do that, there's still some structural things that we're working through as a church. I think we need to talk more about this and pray on this and make sure that we're going through God's will. Now, with that, in any case, the office of the deacon, as we know, whether it's male or female, is reserved for spiritually mature, leading servants who are committed to holiness, the gospel, and the church and they're committed to getting things done. And we all, male and female, would do well to grow and follow that example. Now, what is the foundation of all of this? The foundation of all of this is simply the gospel. The church has one end that is creating worldwide worship. How do we create worldwide worship? Making disciples of the nations. How do we create Disciples of the nations, we preach the gospel. And the gospel is very simple. That God created all things in His holiness, righteousness, and His love. He created all things in the universe, including us. And He created us for a relationship specifically for Him. We were created to be close to Him, near Him, and our lives are incomplete without Him. But because mankind fell into sin, our sin has separated us from God. We're sinners from birth, but we're sinners by action and will. That's what we wanted to do. No one made us do it. Right? And because of our sin, then we are separated from God and under His wrath and condemnation. And nothing we can do can overcome our sin. It's not something we can fix. It's beyond our ability to repair, which means we are helpless and hopeless. And unless God does something, we are doomed to our fate. But the good news is that God in His grace and mercy sent His Son, Jesus Christ, into the world to do all the things for us that we can't do for ourselves. He lived the perfect life that we were supposed to live, fulfilling the law that we were supposed to fulfill, purchasing for us a righteousness that's not our own. And then He goes to the cross to wipe out our debt. He paid the penalty of our sins, suffering for us the wrath of God. And then... Three days later, after he died, he rose, proving that he is what he claimed to be, God in the flesh, and he can do what he promised to do, save us from our sins. And the way we avail ourselves of that righteousness and that forgiveness of our sins and eternal life is what? By faith alone. Repentance in faith. We turn from our old life to God and put our faith in him. And we then, from that moment forward, belong to Him, are part of His family, saved forever, glory, hallelujah. And then entered into the body of Christ and then called and given the privilege and the blessing of service. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially 
as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.